Season one of The Fairer Sense is sponsored by FreshBooks, the cloud accounting software for small business owners and freelancers who are working those side hustles. Stay tuned for more info on how you can get a free trial. Thanks, FreshBooks. I'm Kara. I'm Tanya. And this is The Fairer Sense. Rad women and real money stories instead of the same old financial bullshit. We're talking about goals, resolutions, and self-care. Hey, Kara. Hey, Tanya. How's it going? It's going really well. It's currently below freezing in Austin, and I am Shut walking. up. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> it's, it's above freezing here. It's warmer in the mountains of Tahoe than it is in Austin, Texas. Like, I think hell has frozen over. What? This is a day to be remembered. This is one for the record books, folks. I almost don't believe you. I have to look it up right now. Mm -hmm. Check it out. There's a low of like 24. (laughs) It's crazy. Yeah, it's currently 46 here. What? Which is which? It has no business being in the winter. We totally need snow, and it's no good. But um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and so I'm rocking my onesie, which last year I didn't get to wear at all <laughs> because it never really got cold enough. And this year I've already worn it twice. I'm rocking a onesie too. We're onesie twins. Oh my God. <laughs> yes, that's the best kind of twin to be. Okay, so let me ask you a controversial question. Yes. Feet on the onesie or no feet? My onesie does not have feet, but in general, I'm not opposed to them. I tend to be opposed only because they are always made for shorter people. And so like my onesie tends to come to like above my ankle when I'm sitting. So if it had feet, it would be pulling down. Mm. So I'm I'm anti-feet only just like if they came in multiple lengths, I would be all about the feet. Oh, yeah. I see that that is um, short person privilege. And as a short person, <laughs> I, I probably fit into onesies with feet, no problem. Oh, gosh, I I think that is one of the more ridiculous minority classifications. Like, yes, I, it's so hard to be a slightly above average height person. <laughs> Other controversial question, butt flap or no butt flap? Oh, I also do not have a butt flap. And you know what? Like, oh, I've never thought about it. I think I'm pro butt flap. <laughs> I'm totally bro- pro butt flap, but they're really hard to find. But like, the one problem I have with the onesie, this is like so getting away from money topic, but um, <laughs> it's like you kind of have to get naked to pee, which oh, in yeah. the winter, it's so cold. You want to be covered. So yeah, I wish I had a butt flap. Yeah. I I just recently peed and you have to take it on top. <laughs> I mean, all off. I and, just um... recently peed too. <laughs> We're, We're twinning on everything today. Tell me something else that you are super stoked about right now that does not involve butt flaps or peeing. <laughs> <laughs> no bodily fluids whatsoever. I recently did a deep clean of my office area. And for a long time, it was my office slash T-Bone's instrument home because he has a big keyboard and three guitars. And then we just kind of accepted about a month ago that it's just my office. <laughs> and he nice. took all his instruments out, but I... I'm a very messy person by nature. And unless I'm like really on top of myself, like papers everywhere. <laughs> and so it was a hot mess for like a month and a half. And I did a deep clean. I got rid of a bunch of stuff. I got rid of 
books. I recycled so many papers. I sold an old Nikon camera that I'd had for like two years and hadn't used. And I'm just like, look at me go. Marie Kondo? Calendar? Kondo. 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 Marie Calendar. (laughs) I think that's like frozen food. Oh, it is. It's like the grandma. (laughs) Shout out to you, Marie Calendar. But also Marie Kondo would be very proud of me right now. And I'm just like, I love it. It won't last forever, but I'm feeling really, really glad and happy and more focused. I feel less scattered. And I'm like, oh, because my workspace is clean. (laughs) That is awesome. And I bet that that is something that a lot of people are actually thinking about right now in terms of goals and resolutions. I know decluttering and tidying tends to be a big one. Yeah, definitely. I think everyone kind of wants to head into new months, new years, sometimes new weeks with, okay, well, I did like a deep clean on Sunday and I'm ready to greet Monday morning. Yeah, I I totally understand. I I will say like in my home stretch to early retirement, I have let my office at home get very messy and it is still messy. And I really look forward in the next few weeks to being able to do what you just did and tidy this thing up. Yeah, yeah, it felt great. It took a long time. Took like three hours, but (laughs) it was so worth it. Yeah, totally. Uh, What's something that you're excited about right now? My state, California. um, It's not my state. I don't own it. The state where I live, California, (laughs) where a big chunk of America lives, just passed a law that went into effect this week at the start of January 2018 that is really aimed at getting rid of the wage gap, both for women and for people of color and for every category of people who've historically been underpaid or have had some kind of big gap. And so the new law says that you can no longer ask job applicants for their salary history. You can't make any determination on compensation on the basis of that. And if an employee asks to see the compensation by level for the company, they have to provide it to you. And so I just think this is exactly what we need. We talk a lot here about the wage gap and about transparency. And I think it's interesting because in this case, it's sort of like anti-transparency for job applicants, which is totally fair because like most of the time as a job applicant, you have no idea what the company is going to pay. Maybe you have a little bit of info from like Glassdoor or from friends, but for the most part, they have all the power. They ask you to tell them what you've earned before, which is generally just a means of being able to lowball you. Nobody asks for that in order to pay you more. I think it's just a really, really positive move. So I'm excited to see how it works, if it works as intended, if it becomes a really useful model for other states to follow. Like, yeah, go California. That is amazing. I'm going to go ahead and give that two thumbs up and a big old hell yeah. Because (laughs) (laughs) gold star rating from me. The Kara seal of approval. That's an incredible law that I think will have an amazing ripple effect. And I'm so excited to see what that does over the next couple of years in the foreseeable future for Californian women. I mean, that's amazing. All right. So today we are talking about goals and resolutions. And this is a time of year when we're recording, when a lot of folks are thinking about resolutions. But I'm of the opinion that a resolution is really just a goal by another name. And goal setting is something that a lot of us tend to do at all kinds of times of year, at all times of our lives. And so it's worth a bigger discussion that's a bit more evergreen than just thinking about it at New Year's. 
I'm a big goal setter. I set goals for myself all the time. And sometimes they're short-term, sometimes they're long-term. They are not dictated by the calendar, really. And But I also think, like most things in life, there are two sides to any coin. And goal setting or resolution setting can get tricky and it can get negative quickly. So we want to kind of examine both sides of that coin. Something that I've become really aware of through a couple of different things. One is through my blog, Our Next Life, but the other is through my prior life as a fitness instructor, which I did for a really long time, seeing how goal setting can be really positive and can lead people to do huge, amazing things. And I think Kara and I are both testaments to that, which we will talk about more in this episode. But the flip side is sometimes the act of setting a goal can set a bar in a place that ultimately becomes a negative. It can be something where if you don't actually achieve that goal, you feel a sense of shame or you feel like a failure. And there's something in particular about New Year's resolutions that I think brings to mind a failure narrative that I think is worth exploring a little bit more. So that'll be coming up in this episode too. But we're going to get into all of that, both the the positives of goal setting, which obviously are huge, but also the negatives and really just kind of then get practical on how we can all balance that. It's so interesting for me because I consider myself ambitious, like we talked about in an earlier episode. And I also consider myself competitive and there's no one I like to compete with more than me. I just love, I really enjoy pushing myself. So for me, setting goals is a really good way for me to push past prior achievements and to really see what I'm capable of, which on its face sounds so positive, right? It's exploring the depths of my talent and abilities, but it's also something that I think really quickly for people like me and for other people can, like I said, get a little negative and none of our goals or resolutions exist in a vacuum. So if you've set a goal to like get really fit, well, understand that that plays into the paradigm of thin being a beauty standard that we have in our world. And I don't think stuff like that gets talked about enough. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about that, but it's stuff that's definitely on my mind each time I set a goal. else that I think about a lot and that I think is getting more airtime on on the internet and in conversations is the idea of what is real self-care. Self-care is a word that's gotten, or I guess it's two words, (laughs) that's gotten thrown around a lot in the past couple of years. And I'm all for self-care. I think it's hyper essential, especially given our current political climate and how polarized everyone feels in the world. I heard a lot of people say 2017 was a really tough year for me in many, many ways. So taking care of yourself, taking time for yourself, totally essential. But how we're defining self-care is where it's getting a little bit weird. (laughs) And I mentioned this on a previous episode, but for me, I think I used to really define self-care as really more indulgence. Like, well, I'm going to eat an entire bag of chips because that's self-care and I want to, or I'm not going to work out because that's hard and like self-care, I need to lie in bed for eight hours. (laughs) But actually self-care is making healthy decisions for yourself, whether they are physical or mental. And so understanding, Kara, you haven't left the house in two days. Maybe it's good to go for a walk right now. (laughs) That's self-care as opposed to put more chocolate in your mouth. Yeah. Get out of the onesie sometimes and go take a walk. (laughs) I think about self-care 
and goals as sometimes being really aligned and other times being in conflict with each other. And I think it's really important to ask ourselves that question. I've definitely had goals in my life that I think on some level I felt were healthy and positive for myself, but ultimately weren't. And I've certainly seen a lot of people when I taught yoga and spinning, for example, come in with goals that were clearly not at all healthy. There are certain goals that I think society tells us we should have. Like you mentioned, getting in shape is definitely probably the most common New Year's resolution. And I think something that a lot of people feel pressure to do, but which is also incredibly hard to do for most people now with the length of the average commute and the amount of time that people spend working and all of the demands at home. It's no wonder that I think people feel the struggle to stay fit and to stay at what feels like a healthy weight, even if that healthy weight is dictated by beauty standards more than health guidelines. If you're focused on being fit to an extreme level or your goal is more like how you look or having a six pack, how does having a six pack actually make you happier day to day? How does it make you more self-actualized as a person? Or is it just something that feeds your ego? I'm going to get all yoga teacher here. But like, you know, if it's something that just makes you feel like you look good, but it doesn't actually contribute to your life in a positive way and you're sacrificing a lot to achieve that, like not eating foods you enjoy or not going out to eat with friends or not getting enough sleep so you have time to get up and work out. Like those are all things that are ultimately detrimental to your health and happiness. And so you might look great, but feel crappy. And that's ultimately then not self-care, even if you've technically achieved a big goal. Right. I don't know if this is a yoga saying, but I feel like it might be, you know, it's like starve the ego. Don't starve yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard that, but it doesn't mean it's not a saying. I think that's true. I think ego is a big part of goal setting. And I think we've both talked before about how goals that that are just ultimately for ego are are less likely to feel meaningful. And they're also, I think, ones where we're less likely to stick to them and to achieve them rather than ones that we know actually feed our soul in some way. And so I think about the big financial goals we've both achieved. And if I had set out to retire early just so I could say that I had retired early, I don't know that I actually would have achieved the goal. I think it had to feel real and meaningful to me to actually be able to stick to something for as long as I did. And I, I bet it's similar for you and your debt payoff. I think for me, it's it's always a dance of pushing yourself to achieve things and understanding that sometimes achievement by itself is great. And also sometimes achievement is not enough f- for anything. It's just not enough because of how you got there maybe or because you didn't it's a hollow victory you know if you are pushing yourself to retire early but you're miserable every single day of your life getting there you never get those days back and that's really tough is that is that worth it or is it say okay i'm going to stretch out my timeline a little bit and be happier and then reach the goal that i'm super stoked about and be happy afterwards too i think that's something you've written a lot about on the blog and i know that I think it's the mad scientist. He really pushed himself super duper hard to retire early and then like was a miserable person for <laughs> for a while. He he's spoken about it. he was like I was deeply unhappy and mm-hmm. my wife was unhappy with me and like he kind of had a come to Jesus moment about why he was even pursuing FI. And I think you can see this a lot in other areas whether it's fitness or money or relationship status or Instagram followers, I mean whatever. Rooting down in your why is really important because that really enables the how. And I think it's also important to understand that your why and your how are not always necessarily going to be perfectly aligned, but I think you should aim for that. 
we as humans are so wired to have an all or nothing way of thinking about things that we tend to think, well, if this thing is worth doing, then it's worth doing as fast as possible or as well as possible or whatever the superlative in your particular goals instance might be. You know, like no one says, oh yeah, I want to get promoted at work, but I'm okay getting promoted slowly. You know, everyone wants to get to the highest levels as quickly as possible. We want to earn more money. We want to pay off our debt instantly. We want to, you know, whatever your financial goal is in particular, there's such a tendency to want to do it quickly. And I get like, we are wired to be impatient. There's there's actual neurological science behind this. But it's one of those instances where it's so useful with goal setting, I think, to remember that there is so much gray area in between and that there is no one right speed at which we have to reach goals. Like I will just say for us, pursuing early retirement, we could have definitely gotten to it a little bit faster than we did, but we knew that that would mean eating rice and beans and we really love all kinds of different food. So we would have really missed going out to restaurants sometimes and cooking different things. We love going to music festivals and concerts. It would have meant cutting that out. It would have meant cutting out a ton of travel, which is to me like the reason to be alive. And so that ultimately wouldn't have felt worth it. And so it's to your point, like why are we ultimately saving the money? We're not just saving the money to save or to say like we got there as quickly as possible. We're saving to have a good life. So then in that case, why would we not also want to live a good life in the meantime? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly my point. And I'm halfway through the four hour work week and I know everyone else has read it, but something that's kind of hitting me is that he seems very primed for optimizing everything about his life all the time and being ruthlessly efficient. And you see that a lot in the personal finance world and I think in the fitness world, but in lots of other places too. And honestly, that's something that doesn't really interest me. When I root down in my why and I think, okay, because I am interested in becoming financially independent, because for me, that ties into calming my feelings of financial insecurity. And it also acts as a springboard into being secure in, oh, I don't have to earn money today. I can do something else. And it just kind of wipes away some fears. But I'm not going to do balls to the wall craziness to get there. Because again, like you don't get this time back. And I think there's so much to be said for each part of the journey, which is another thing we've kind of touched on a few times in this podcast. When I was paying off my debt, I was 26, 27, and I was ruthless, but I'll never be 27 again. (laughs) That time Uh is gone. And something that I think about a lot that I gave up was this trip to Las Vegas. I had a free place to stay, but I was going to have to pay for the flight. I was going to have to pay for food. And two of my good friends went and I kind of regret not going. It was going to cost me like 400 bucks and I didn't want to spend that money. And not going did enable me to reach a financial goal, which is awesome. Like I did that, check that off the list. But it also meant missing out time with my friends who now no longer live in the same city as I am and are very far away. And, you know, I'm 29, I've never been to Vegas. So um, I just kind of think there's a time and place for everything, right? There's like a season for hustle. There's a season for sacrifice. But there's also when you're on the path towards achieving a goal or setting a resolution, I think understanding the hows of that, how do you want to be doing that? What are you willing to give up and in what amounts? What are you willing to push through or push for? And what are the ways you want to do that? And you don't have to do the same thing as everyone else. And you don't have to write the same story as everyone else. 
And I think that's something that gets lost a lot. I think so too. I don't want it to sound like I'm trying to dissuade anybody from setting big goals because I am a huge believer in the transformative power of reaching a goal and what that does for you and your self-image and just feeling like a self-actualized person who can like go out and kick ass in the world. I think that's all awesome. So I think goal setting is great and goal achieving is even better. But I think the flip side is a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, like thinking about, to your point about Tim Ferriss and the four-hour work week and then all the stuff he's done since then. I mean, the irony is I can't imagine that Tim Ferriss works less than 60 hours a week. He is just a constant hustle machine. And I think it's not only about what is it ultimately that you're trying to achieve, at least in the short term, but also like what are the seeds that you're sowing right now? So I think if you're putting yourself in an optimization mindset of how do I make every minute productive in my day and how do I make sure that everything I'm doing is worthwhile, I wonder if then you start to wire yourself to think that way to such an extent that you can't really relax or you feel like, okay, here is my 30 minutes to relax. I'm going to relax now instead of like just being able to go relax or like waste a day and not feel guilty about it because there is just some beautiful pleasure in being able to waste a little bit of time or sort of balancing then the productivity with the self-care stuff, like sometimes doing something that is unhealthy might actually be the healthy thing if what it provides for you is balance. Like I am not personally a watcher of the shows on Bravo, but I know many people who are, some close friends. And like if watching The Real Housewives helps you unplug from work and forget about your stress or whatever else, like more power to you in small doses. If all you want to do all day is sit around and watch The Real Housewives, like that's maybe not so healthy. But if it's helping you balance something else or detox from something, like more power to you. The poison is in the dose. Something that's bad for you in big quantity might be totally fine for you as an antidote to something else. Yeah. And I think that goes back to the definition of self-care. Like I'm a productive person and I'm a hard worker and I love trash TV. I have seen every <laughs> single episode. There's this show called The Client List, which was originally on Lifetime and is now on Netflix and stars Jennifer Love Hewitt as like a mom who has fallen on hard times and she puts on a <laughs> massage parlor that has happy endings, wink, wink. Uh-oh. Awful. It's so bad. And I have watched every single episode in the entire first season twice. So like, I don't think anyone could knock my hustle, but also like I make time for the client list <laughs> and it brings me joy and judgment from T-Bone. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> oh yeah. And I may have said I don't do the Bravo, but I do plenty of trash TV. I recently stopped, but for a while I was watching like Dance Moms, which is like truly terrible, but I watched it because <laughs> those kids are such incredible dancers. <laughs> That's my excuse. But no, like we we are all allowed to indulge a little. Like whatever you need to counter modern life stress as long as it's not ultimately itself becoming unhealthy. Like no shame. Yeah, and I continue to think the idea of balance, you know, or having it all is kind of another weird narrative that we're in, but I do think it sh your life shouldn't be endless hustle and it shouldn't be endless goal setting. Uh, nor should it be endless indulgence. You should have limits on all of these things so that you can ultimately, hopefully, find balance. Kara, you're a business owner. Tanya, you're a business owner. Woo, go us. And though we are badass business owners who are out here making hilarious podcasts and super engrossing blogs, parts of the job are not as glamorous. 
like creating invoices, tracking payments, or making sure that people actually pay us for our hard work. Fortunately, FreshBooks makes all of that stuff easy. FreshBooks is the cloud accounting software that's changing the world for freelancers, small business owners, and everyone in the gig economy, giving us more time to focus on what we really care about. Like crushing the patriarchy. I've spent a 15-year career as a W-2 employee and have never actually had to do my own accounting or send an invoice to get paid. It's intimidating, but FreshBooks makes it completely unscary. I am both happy and ashamed to say that for over a year, I mixed and matched services to do my accounting, and it took so much time. FreshBooks is literally giving me back my time. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to the Fairer Sense listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com TFC and enter the Fairer Sense in the How Did You Hear About Us section. A metaphor that I think is really useful is the one of dieting. So we know from tons and tons of studies at this point that have been done that dieting is ultimately problematic, that we as humans are wired to crave food because that's a survival instinct. If there's food in front of you and you don't want to eat it, then you risk starving later because you didn't pad your fat stores for winter. So there is a practical evolutionary purpose for our wanting to eat all the delicious things all the time. Unfortunately, now in this age of abundance, that instinct doesn't serve us well at all. It tends to get a lot of us in trouble. But we know that if you diet constantly, then you tend to have this mindset of being really excited to binge or to have like your cheat day or whatever. But people who diet long-term tend to rebound and actually gain more weight. So thinking about something like a financial goal, if you're treating it like it's calorie deprivation and you're really scrimping in a way that feels deeply unpleasant or feels like you're suffering a little bit for it, that might be sustainable over the short term, maybe one time, like it was for you to pay off your debt. Though I'd love for you to say in a second, if if you would do it the same way, if you had it to do over again, or if you would do it a little differently, I'd love to hear that. But I think the the main thing is like, if you make a habit of approaching your financial goals that way, then Ultimately, you're not necessarily going to be setting yourself up for success because if you're always trying to deprive yourself by being super frugal, um, which if you're naturally super frugal, great. But if that's not natural for you and that feels like deprivation, then it's sort of setting your brain up to say like, oh, I can't wait till I can get to that time when I can spend wildly. And then when you get to that time, you're likely to spend wildly. And then you're going to feel worse about yourself. And then it turns into this whole shame spiral. So rather than setting these super depriving goals of saving a ton to a point where you feel like it's a real sacrifice, maybe set smaller goals that are more achievable that don't feel like a sacrifice, but ultimately get you out of that sort of like diet and crash cycle that is the same with food, but with your money instead. Um, okay, just really quickly on the food note, also in the four-hour work week, I guess Tim Barris, he might still be doing this. I'm not sure. He was in 2006 eating like broccoli and chicken six days a week and then he had one cheat day. And he mentions in one of the chapters, he's like, I was on my 12th cupcake. And I'm like, bro, who wants to eat 12 cupcakes in one sitting? Like, I mean, if you eat broccoli and chicken like every day, maybe that that's why. (laughs) Yes. But if you have more of a balance where you're like, I eat broccoli and chicken and like one cupcake per day, like, why can't you do that, Tim Ferriss? Why do you have to? I don't know. I'm just saying. I mean, I don't want to sound judgmental about anyone's eating habits because I know a lot of people have very delicate relationships with food. And I pick on Tim Ferriss because, A, he put that out there into the universe. And, B, he's worth $100 million. And, C, <laughs> like, 
doesn't give a fuck about what I think. So it's fine. But I'm just like, I think it's very harmful restricting binge, which studies also show health-wise, it's not healthy. (laughs) And when it Mm -hmm. comes to our money too, yeah, like, I mean, I restricted with my debt payoff journey. I cut everything out of my life, like everything. And I worked myself to the bone. And looking back at it, on the one hand, yeah, it was remarkable what I did. On the other hand, I'm like, that was crazy. That was absolutely crazy. And I was not happy most of the time. And I also wasn't working. It wasn't strategic. Like I wasn't working towards what I'm doing now. Really, I wasn't working in an area that would become my career exactly. So I don't know if I would do it the same way again. I feel very 50-50 on that. I think it's incredible to push yourself and to see what you're capable of. I really do. I also think that such a fine line to walk before all of a sudden you fall into this like dark hole of whether it's, you know, intense control over your life that is unhealthy or you're caught up in an endless rat race trying to achieve the next thing. I just wish for myself and for others that there is more forgiveness if you don't achieve a goal or if you don't measure up to some bar that you or someone else put into place. I actually had this conversation on Twitter the other day. Somebody, this woman is working to pay off a bunch of her student loans and she was like, I'm setting the goal for like 40 grand. It's going to be really hard to meet, but I'm aiming high. Is this a good or bad idea? And I chimed in and said, hey, I think it's great. Set the bar high, but also understand that if you only pay off $30,000 over the course of next year, that's still badass. Like that is still incredible and be happy with that and not upset that you didn't hit 40. So I think that for me is really the toughest part is celebrating the things that you are able to do, even if you don't hit necessarily what you set out to do. And I think that is a really tough thing because if you don't aim high, then you might achieve less than you could have otherwise. Like if she only set out to save 20, maybe she'd only do 20 instead of aiming to do 40, maybe she does 30. So It's ultimately probably better to aim a little higher, but then it's a question of how do you feel about it at the end? And if that feels like success, then great. But if it feels like a fail, then that's where it's worth some examination to figure out how do you make it feel better. I'm such a big fan of figuring out the systems that work for you because I went through my whole life feeling like I was bad at money and couldn't save and would spend everything I had. And If I did what pretty much every financial expert I'd read up to that point said to do, I sucked at it. You know, like I could not take money out of each paycheck and save it the way I was supposed to. And so I just, I felt like a failure. My goal was to do what these other folks told me I should do and I couldn't. And it was only once I figured out the system that worked for me, which in my case is automation. Like I'm a big decision fatigue person. I feel like there are a million decisions I have to make every day. If I can get to a point where like it's one less decision I can make and the saving just happens automatically and I never see that money and it's invisible and it's hidden from me, then I can save. So knowing that and figuring that out was a huge epiphany. But if I looked at sort of like the how as the goal, I would have absolutely been a failure. But instead, I figured out my own how and looked at the why, which is I want to save money to be more secure so that I don't lose sleep at night, freaking out about money. And that so eventually I can retire early and have my own time to myself or with my husband, Mark, of course. Those then 
enabled me to reach the goals in a different way. So I know that's like a meandering way of saying that, but I, I think finding the right system is a huge part of goal setting as well. So it's not just like the, where do I want to end up, but also how am I going to get there? And what are the tools that are going to help me? And those tools are going to look different for each person. And we're not giving you prescriptive advice on how to achieve goals or how to be like us or like anyone <laughs> because everyone's unique and your life and circumstances and abilities are going to be different from ours. And so you have to find your own house. In January 2015, I set a goal to become debt-free in one year. I had just about $12,000 left in my student loans, which wasn't really a huge amount. But remember, in 2014, I had only earned $18,000, and I still didn't have a full-time job. I was working five part-time jobs, and I had no idea where that $12,000 was going to come from. I just knew that I wanted the debt gone, and I set my mind to do it. I made my last debt payment of $2,000 on June 5th, 2015. I paid off my debt in six months. Something that had once seemed nearly impossible was now done and over with. I'd accomplished my goal. At the time, I was so driven. I really can't explain how focused I was on my debt payoff. My entire life revolved around it. Everything I did was in pursuit of becoming debt-free. I worked five jobs, one of which was catering, and I picked up every catering shift that I could and always offered to stay late in order to get another hour of pay. I got everything from my budget that I could, including <laughs> groceries altogether for two months. I lived off catering leftovers, eating mashed potatoes and rolls instead of spending any of my hard-earned money. T-Bone knew that dinners out or a concert or any kind of date night outside of the house were totally off the table. On June 5th, I felt like I had climbed Everest. I'd been working to pay off my remaining student loan debt since September 2014, and I'd really kicked it into gear for those last six months. I had worked so hard and so single-mindedly for so long, and I'd done it. I had said I would do something, and I fucking did it. But I had also essentially isolated myself in my house, refusing to join friends for drinks or weekend getaways. I hadn't been to a movie in almost a year. I talked almost endlessly about my debt to anyone who would listen, and I checked my Mint account probably 10 or 20 times a day. I was totally obsessed with debt payoff. My balance dropped each week, but so did the quality of my life. I got legitimately angry at any unexpected expense that cropped up and that meant I had to take money out of a debt payment. I wrote a blog post in February 2015 that contained the line, I have worked the last 14 days straight and my body is tired. I don't think that continual work-life balance is really a thing, and in many ways pushing myself to my limits was exactly what I needed in 2015. I was pretty sad and I needed some structure in my life. I gave up many things, experiences, and moments with people and places that I'll never get back. I gave up a year of my 20s that I'll never get back. When we're in pursuit of a goal, we have to sacrifice something. But what do we do when the act of achieving is bringing you greatness and also bringing you down? What happens when our bank accounts go up and our happiness goes down? What are we doing about the fact that so many people are defining success or achievement as isolating yourself from family and friends so that you can build greatness on your own? We cheer for the stories of the Silicon Valley engineers who work 17 hours a day 
and miss their kids' soccer games and family dinners because it creates Venmo. We repeat the stories of the Lyft driver who went into labor and still picked up a passenger. But why don't we ask, hey, why isn't our world structured so that we don't have to demand so much from people? Why isn't there more help? Why do we love seeing people pushed to their extremes so damn much? I wonder, are we getting lost in goal setting? Are we getting too caught up in achievement? Are we chasing a never-ending horizon? It sometimes feels that way. I'm sometimes doing that. I've since paid off my debt, and my focus has just shifted to saving and investing my money. Dinners out are still a rarity in my house. But when is it enough? And when will I really believe that I've reached that place? What were some tips that you learned when you were doing your debt payoff or maybe that you've discovered since then that help you meet financial goals? I'm a very big visual person, so I need to write down my goals and have them someplace I can see them so I remember what I'm striving for and also the how I'm planning on getting there. Another big thing for me is talking about it. The first thing I started to do when I got really serious about my debt payoff was tell everybody in my life that's what I was doing, like everybody. (laughs) All my friends, random bartenders, people in line at the store. I talked about it constantly and A, it opened up really wonderful conversations with the people who were close to me in my life because everyone was super supportive and a lot of people in my life had debt that they weren't talking about and all of a sudden it was, oh yeah, I shouldn't go out either because I also want to make a payment this month. Or, yeah, my debt really does stress me out and I'm not sure how I'm going to tackle it. How are you tackling yours again? So that was awesome. And so communication about your goals, I think, is huge. And they say that, right? Like once you speak something into the world, you have accountability, but you also have support. And I think that's something else. Another thing that I don't think gets enough (laughs) credit is is asking to be supported in something and not just hold me accountable, make sure I get up at 6 a.m. and run those 10 miles, but like ask me how I'm doing in my journey and ask me what is going awesome and ask me what is not going awesome. You know, like engage with me on my goal. And everyone in my life engaged with me when I was paying off my debt. And I really credit that for being able to do it so quickly. That's so awesome that you had that support. I think social support is something that, like you said, people just don't talk about enough. And we know too that folks who have strong social structures and strong social support tend to live much longer and have more good years of life. So there's more to that stuff than just reaching your goals. But I totally agree with you. I think when people are behind you and have your back, it completely helps. And I think that's true for money goals and fitness goals and every kind of life goal. I'm wondering in your process, did you find anything helpful that that helped you achieve your debt payoff in terms of like breaking your goal down into increments or how did you kind of approach it? I followed the debt avalanche method. So putting all my extra payments towards my highest interest loan was super helpful. It was just like a practical thing that helped decrease the amount of interest I was paying month by month. And it also organized my plan of attack instead of just throwing extra money and trying to say, okay, well, $75 towards this loan or $30 towards this loan. It was like everything just towards this one, which just simplified the process. I knew exactly what I was doing every time I logged on to make a payment and saved me money by decreasing my interest over the course of paying it off. So that is probably my number one debt payoff tip. Like pick a method. It can be avalanche. It can be snowball. It can be the debt that makes you the angriest. (laughs) Like it can be purely emotional, but get organized about your money and you'll see financial growth. 
It's so interesting to hear debates about debt avalanche versus snowball versus I feel like I heard one other snow-based debt method recently, but I can't remember what it was called. Nonetheless, like I think the idea there, and, and if you're not familiar, debt avalanche versus snowball, it's a question of paying off the smallest balances first versus paying off the highest interest rate debt first. And there are pros and cons of both. And I think that it's really a question of just which motivates you more. And I think that that's really important. It's not just about the goal itself, but how can you go about achieving that goal in a way that builds momentum instead of continuing to feel like a drag or feeling like a diet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Build momentum. <laughs> I'm just sitting over here thinking about doing it. And on the one hand, right, like I'm appalled at what I did. On the other hand, I'm like, it was so amazing. It was so addictive. Making those payments each month and watching the balance drop was super addictive. Oh my gosh, I know. Like when, I mean, it's been longer for me now, but when I paid off my student loans and my car loan and my credit cards, it was the same thing. Like I, I didn't live quite as miserly in existence just because Mark was not in debt at that point and he paid for some stuff. So we still could go out a little bit and do some things that I know you weren't letting yourself do um, in the interest of debt payoff. But like I was not buying anything. I was spending essentially zero money, but socking all of that away and seeing things drop or watch, you know, like my net worth shift from red to black was so incredible. And I think that I'll be honest, like I think if I hadn't done that, I don't know that I would have been able to pivot to saving for early retirement because it was kind of that addiction that I'd created to watching the charts and watching those numbers shift that was really easy then to translate into saving instead of debt payoff. Oh yeah. I totally credit my debt payoff tactics for my financial habits now that I don't have any debt. I mean, kind of like I talked about in our urge to compare episode about growing my net worth. I mean, my net worth has grown by like a crazy amount. And not that I have that much money, but just I started so low <laughs> in a very short amount of time. And it's because I just essentially took all the money that I was putting into debt payoff into savings. And so I've been able to max out my IRA for the last three years. And I've been able to do these things that all of a sudden I'm like, oh man, I got some money in the bank. Wild, but also awesome. But also what? <laughs> It is totally awesome. You've you've done such great stuff and I think it's really important to tout that. How many times have you heard an ad that began with something like this is going to be the year you lose that weight. Or, don't you deserve to finally live your best life? Those might seem like positive, affirming messages, but built into them is something darker, the assumption of failure. It's safe to say, I am not a fan of New Year's resolutions. Not just because I side hustled in gyms for 10 years, teaching yoga and spinning in LA, and saw my classes swell each January, only to go back down to their usual size by mid-February. And not just because I saw that excitement that folks brought into class in January turn into shame and an unwillingness to look me in the eye when they snuck into the back of class many months later after falling out of their workout routine. Though of course both of those are part of it. The very idea of a New Year's resolution suggests that whatever we've been doing to this point is wrong, and we need to change it, perhaps drastically. That there's something wrong with us that we need to fix. And then when we don't see that resolution through, 
the fate of the vast majority of resolutions for the vast majority of people, we feel like we failed, like we're failures. We internalize that failure narrative and let it affect how we see ourselves, rather than just asking if maybe the concept of the New Year's resolution is simply flawed to begin with. There will always be the exceptions who prove the rule, those for whom resolutions are motivating and empowering. Good for them. But then there are the rest of us. And we already get enough beating down from a world that's quick to tell us how deficient we are, how badly we need to change. The last thing we need is an annual reminder of someone else's negative narrative of us. So setting goals? Great. Do that. Picture the life you want and work toward it with everything you have. But New Year's resolutions? You don't need them. we're here to talk about women and money, which we haven't actually talked all that much about women in this episode so far. I do think it's interesting when we talk about goals and what happens if you don't exactly hit that goal that I think is a bit different for women. Like if you look at, for example, our current president, who is by many measures, not necessarily the most successful business person. He has how many bankruptcies and lots of failed projects. And still gets to go around and call himself this great businessman. And whether you believe him or not, it's not going to stop him from talking about it. But it's interesting because I think when women don't necessarily succeed at something, I do think that the narrative is very different. And I think you look at female CEOs and sort of natural forces happening in the world, like the shift toward everything being online and toward work happening in a more virtual way and toward people not paying for a lot of stuff now that they historically paid for, which means businesses have to shift their business models when women can't adapt to that, I do think that they're talked about differently. Like you think about Marissa Mayer at Yahoo or Meg Whitman, who was most recently at HP and was at eBay before that. Like just hearing what people write about them or reading what people write about them or hearing what they say, I do think it's different than for men. And so I think like we as women carry that around a bit more and we feel like more of a failure if we don't hit a goal rather than just going like, yeah, the world is changing and, you know, shareholder pressure is crazy and you know, you can't get customers to pay for news anymore because everyone wants to be able to read it online for free or like, you know, whatever the the thing might be, we tend to internalize that and, and tell ourselves that we're failures. And I think it would be really good if we would all stop that. I completely agree. Again, just to go back to the, the goal setting baseline, you know what really shoots your goal in the foot is you saying to yourself, I'm a piece of shit. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. It's so hard to achieve anything. If you are constantly telling yourself that you're not good at stuff because now you've created this narrative in your head that you are not good at things and therefore why would you be able to achieve anything? And a lot of women mm-hmm. hear that on a societal scale. Like we are told all the time, oh, well, like women aren't funny or women aren't good at math or women aren't good at running businesses the way men are. So then of course you start to think, maybe I shouldn't run a business, you know, or maybe I shouldn't go to that open mic night because no one wants to hear a woman tell jokes and you cut yourself off because somebody else started to close the door and you were like, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to walk through that door. They're right. And that's sexism. (laughs) That's what that is. But also it just, I mean, it fires me up. It makes me so sad. And I think when it comes to institutions of oppression, people want to talk a lot about the oppressors. Like, oh, it's so hard for the oppressors. You know, it's so hard for all these men now that we're calling out sexual harassment or like, you know, 
slave owners really weren't that bad. <laughs> I'm just like, and somebody was like, who's saying that? Oh my God, people. <laughs> uh, Roy Moore is, <laughs> was like, oh, oh. Yeah, Roy Moore. He's not people. He's a monster. <laughs> yeah. Think about all the great minds that were lost to the cotton fields. Think about all of the great women producers who are forced out of television or movies because Harvey Weinstein couldn't keep his dick in his pants. You know, like we have lost so many contributions to our society because we make it hard for people to get in places. And I'm like, stop that. (laughs) Just stop it. And the solution is so easy. Just treat everyone with respect. Like it's so easy (laughs) and we're not doing it. That is a whole other issue. (laughs) Totally agree. Of course. It's, I think the challenge is like to your example of then do you not get up on the stage at open mic night because you know that people are more programmed to see guys. Like it's at that point less about what society thinks and more about what we then internalize. And so you might know you're funny and you might think that like that belief that women aren't funny is wrong. But if you still act according to that idea, then you've still internalized that narrative. And I think that's the really hard part. It's like if you fail at a financial goal and you tell yourself as a result that you're bad at money, that is ultimately harming you. And it's also harming in a way like society and all other women, which I don't mean to put that on any person because we all do that. We all take on those negative narratives. Like how many women, I, like is there a woman alive who hasn't thought like, oh, I'm, I feel so fat today or I look ugly or any of those negative things, which like aren't true, but we're trained to internalize those narratives. And I think it's the same with money. But if we can let that go and instead of saying like, oh, I'm a failure or I'm bad at money, instead say like, you know what? I haven't found the right system. I need to get clear on my why and I need to figure out a better system that actually works for me instead of just what works for like some white dude who wrote a book. Then we're making progress. And I think that's the direction that I would love to see people go is keep setting those goals, keep aiming high, keep seeing even partial success as success. But ultimately, if you don't reach that goal, don't create a narrative in your mind that isn't even true. So we touched a bit today on goals and resolutions and some of the pros, some of the cons, some of the muddy waters as always. And we'd love to hear from you guys. Tell us what are some of your goals for this year? Some of your resolutions, things you've been working on before it became 2018 and your thoughts on this muddy water that we find ourselves living in. We're like salamanders. (laughs) Uh, Do salamanders live in muddy water? To be determined. I have to. I feel like we end up sounding so dumb about scientific facts on this oh, show. Man. All right. Well, we'll edit that out. We'll edit that out. I want people to know I know stuff about salamanders. <laughs> We'd love to hear from you about goals that you are setting for yourself or that you have set for yourself in the past and how you've achieved them. And if you have not achieved them, how that felt and how you kind of handled that because failure happens, man. <laughs> Yeah. And I think more than failure happening, it's that sometimes there are factors beyond our control. Like if you set a goal to invest $10,000 this year or to have, let's say you actually set a goal to have a balance of $10,000. And as soon as you invest all your money, the market crashes. Like that's not your fault. You still saved the money. You still did the work. So I think a big goal for all of us, especially for women this year, should be to see 
not necessarily hitting a goal exactly like we thought we would as failure, but seeing it as something else, as an opportunity to learn, as a way we can grow, as a way that we can pivot into a new goal so that it's always about growth. It's never about contracting. And I think, you know, that saying like, shoot for the moon, even if you miss, you land among the stars. I know that- Which by the way, that's so not true. The stars are way farther away than the moon is. <laughs> I was just going to say that. I was like, I know it's not scientifically true. <laughs> but the sentiment- We do know stuff about science. We do know stuff about science. <laughs> the sentiment I think is really great, which is, yeah, aim high and be proud of what you are able to accomplish. Be proud of the fact that you saved $10,000 and the markets crashed. Major bummer. But you saved that $10,000. <laughs> I think it's great to carve out new roles for yourself and new identities for yourself. And if there are bumps along the way, there are bumps along the way. Amen to that. So let us know what you're thinking about for goals this year. And especially if you've reframed the way that you think of any of your goals or how you define success from them, we'd love to hear all about that. So you can email us at fairersense at gmail.com or you can tweet at us at fairersense. And we do have a bonus episode coming up where we dive into some of the tweets and emails we've gotten from listeners. So if you have thoughts on anything we've talked about this season or us in general or the podcast in general, please send them our way because we'll use them for the show. And quick tidbit about that. We will just be using first names so we won't be like outing you. <laughs> you know, anonymity, privacy is really important to us. So you will be protected. Please still feel free to share yes. your thoughts. Absolutely. No doxing happening here at the Fair Sense. Oh my God. That's actually on our business cards. So. And if you don't want us to use your name at all or any other details, it's totally great to say that. We respect all of that. So whatever you want to share, if you have questions for us, if you want to know like what Kara is wearing when she's not recording in the closet versus when she's in there, it's all fair game. It is. We're a pretty open books. You just let me know. Yeah. <laughs> So if you like what you've been hearing, we'd love if you would subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else you get your podcasts. And we love those reviews. Big, big thank you to everyone who's left them so far, including those grumpy one-star review people. We know you didn't really hate it that much. You really meant to leave three stars, but it's okay. We love you anyway. Oh, we do love you. If you're pleasing everybody, you're accomplishing nothing, right? right? So, so I almost said so right. Yeah, so right. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> nothing matters. It's fine. Well, Hey, Kara, stay rad. Yes, until next time, stay rad, Tanya. The Fairer Sense is produced by me, Tanya Hester, and the best podcast partner in crime ever, Kara Perez, editing by me. Our theme song is by The Insider, our ad music is by Keith McLeod, and additional music is from the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, Juanitos, Lee Rosevear, Vote for Free, Boxcat Games, Baby59, and OPD. You can always find me at OurNextLife.com and Kara at BravelyGo.co.
earthquake right now. I think it's small. Oh my God, really? I can't believe where you live. Sometimes you say things like, I'm having an earthquake, or, oh, there might be a reverse 911 call. <laughs> we have to evacuate NBD. Never a dull moment. Oh my goodness.